You guys can be seated. Before I release the kiddos, though, kiddos, you stay in here just a quick minute. I want you to experience just real quickly um, some of the amazing fun our teenagers had. And I know, I know, kids, you have fun, but uh, our teenagers had fun. Yesterday, um, yesterday uh, we were able to, uh, they had a... Uh, scavenger hunt slash it wasn't a scavenger hunt it was a task challenge and I'm not going to show you all the ridiculousness they got into and how many thousands of dollars of damage they they caused but I do want one of the things I had to do was create um, some food art so I have a picture of the food art right here that's pretty good I mean come on mustard mayo chocolate syrup a little, uh, I think they said barbecue sauce and mayonnaise mix for the caramel face there. And the weird toes, whatever, I don't know what's going on there, but that's pretty good. Um, another thing they had, uh, they, another thing they had to do was um, they had to surprise one of the youth workers. So look at this. No, no, no. No, okay. Okay. Open your eyes. <laughs> oh, man. Yes, yes. Poor Adam. Um. <laughs> open your eyes. Your favorite <laughs> That was his consolation prize, I think. I think we got one more video, one of the other challenges they had to do. <laughs> All right, wait, I want to get sound of a little. Okay, they, they had to go make a weird sound. <laughs> so now we know that Kai's an alien. I don't I know. Like when you think of an alien sound, that's what you think of right there. Uh, we'll dismiss our school age kids. Y'all go ahead and go. Uh, the rest of us, if you brought a Bible with you, would you open your Bibles to First uh, Peter chapter 2? While they're turning there, can I just... Can I ask all of our youth workers, if you're like, you're part of this covenant student ministry team, you're a youth worker, would you just stand right where you're at and just keep standing? Yes, they've just, will y'all give it up for them? Listen, y'all be, y'all be extra nice to these people. These people haven't slept in 48 hours. They, uh, their homes are wrecked. Um, we, we've had several of, uh, that hosted these people. We had 15, 16, sixth graders at some houses. I mean, it's been crazy. Um, if you, if you're in here and you actually hosted kids in your home, will you stand up right where you have you hosted kids in your home if they're not asleep? Wow. I'm just going to throw this out there as a disclaimer. Covenant doesn't have any line item in our budget for repairing anything that was broken. That's, uh, that's between you and your insurance. Um, and then we had several college students come in. If you're a college student, when you stand, you came in and served our kids, college students that came in to serve our kids. Thank y'all so much. Thank y'all so much. That's pretty incredible. And they gave up uh, a weekend to be here. Um, many of them drove a few hours, several hours at their own expense to come invest in our and our students, and that's just amazing. I really have something heavy in my heart I want to share with us today as we look at God's word, 1 Peter chapter 2. 
And I'll do my own uh, scripture reading today. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. Have a Bible if you'll turn there or on a device, however you brought it. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 reads, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you had not received, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father God, would you do in the next few minutes what only you can do? Lord, we've come in here and many of us are good at playing religious games. Some of us um, in this room have yet to meet you as Lord and Savior. I pray that you would just move in our hearts that you would give and grant those a gift of faith, that they would believe, that they would taste and see that you're good. Others of us carrying such heavy weights and fighting such heavy battles, and with our last ounce of desperation, we showed up again and we asked you, God, would you bring deliverance? Would you bring breakthrough? Would you remind us of our identity in you? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're studying, uh, we're planning to study through uh, First and Second Peter after Easter. And as I was reading, prepping for that, this passage just, I mean, grabbed my heart about six weeks ago. And I was like, this has got to be uh, in the Above and Beyond series on D-Now Sunday. They've been talking about the image of God, Imago Dei, the image of God, that we were created in God's very own image, which is pretty incredible. And Peter here is going to be writing this letter to remind the church of what that identity actually is. Because, friends, it's easy to forget. The author Peter, uh, people love Peter because there's something about him that we can just identify with. He's a normal guy, but he had a big mouth and he said some really stupid things. And I identify with those things. Peter's name is mentioned in the Gospels more than anyone else other than Jesus. No one speaks in the Gospel as much as uh, Peter did, and Jesus spoke more about Peter, more to Peter than any other individual, often encouraging him, calling him up, but sometimes even rebuking him. You remember some of those? What I love about Peter is that he's not real churchy. He's just a dude's dude. When you read Paul, the apostle Paul, he is real churchy. He uses these big words that we don't understand. He's Paul's like, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I graduated from the highest school in the land. And Peter's like, listen, bro, I know the difference between a carp and a crappy. That's, that's, who, that's who Peter is. He's a fisherman. Paul probably sat around and watched the History Channel. Peter, I feel like, was more of a sports center guy. And he's writing this to people who are in the midst of real suffering. They don't understand what they're going through. They don't know what they should do about it. And one of the things I think is so helpful to see is that the Bible doesn't skip over the issue of suffering or the issue that suffering presents to faith in a good God. That's for another sermon, but it is certainly addressed. But he addresses this flock in 1 Peter chapter 1. He addresses them, that's not our text for the day, but he addresses them as elect exiles. Elect exiles. And I think that's explained so much of today's passage. 
Have you ever had a hard season that you really tried to make sense of, but it just, you just didn't have any real clear answers? God, why? God, how? God, where? God, what's next? That's these people. And he uses several words that, that I want to dig into, and we're going to eventually get to this idea of a royal priesthood. But all these phrases go all the way back to Israel. The church would be the new Israel. And just about everything you see Israel doing in the Old Testament, we do as a church, the church, in a spiritual way now. He says in verse 9, but you are a chosen race. You're a chosen race. Or maybe your translation say a chosen people. This was the word for the Jews. But Peter is using this for mostly Gentiles. And at first reading, it can be a little confusing. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Again, chapter 1 calls them these elect exiles. It's a very important name. Elect means they've been chosen by God. They're God's people. Exiles mean that they're not in home territory. Some translations, maybe yours says this, that they're aliens or pilgrims or strangers. These were names that had been given to the Jews at one point. And the Jews were God's elect people. And while they had been driven out of Israel to live in a foreign land, and they were chosen exiles. They were elect exiles. God's blessed and favored people, but not in a place where God rules, under the subjugation of a foreign enemy power. That's what the Jews were. That's what the Jews were, the Israelites were when they were in Egypt. That's what the Israelites were here even when Jesus walked the earth, when they were uh, occupied by Rome. In other words, you don't really belong here. You're citizens of another country. But Peter now gives this name to the Gentile church. You are God's chosen people. You are living in a land under the domination of an enemy power. You don't belong here. You're citizens of another country. Again, some translations say aliens or strangers, pilgrims maybe. And listen, friends. You're odd. You don't fit. And that's because they're tuned into something different. Now, this is for the teenagers. Teenagers, I want you to listen to me. Some of the prayers that you're praying this season of your life is going to alter the trajectory of your life, trajectory of your life forever. And here's what God is calling you to be, teenagers. While all the adults listen and we need to listen, we need this reminder. That you're supposed to be a little different. You're supposed to be tuned into something different. Imagine you're watching uh, uh, the band, the drum corps out there, and they're doing a, they're doing a performance at halftime. And all of them are watching the drum major, the guy or the gal on the platform, and they're following him or her. And, but there's one guy in the middle who's paying no attention to the drum major, and he's doing his own thing, and he's not following formation, and he's not in the right rhythm He's got his AirPods in and he's listening to a Bieber song and, and he's going to look odd, right? Because he's tuned into something radically different. Friends, students, when you're tuned into God, you're supposed to look a bit odd. Extremely, in fact. You're, if you're not odd, maybe it's because you're tuned in more to how the world does things than you are into the Holy Spirit as he leads you. And that's a word for the students, but that's a word for all of us. That we've got to be tuned in to the Spirit's direction in our life at every step. And I don't mean that you're odd because of this weird Christian subculture. My early days in youth ministry with this, we couldn't come up with our own slogans. And so Christian, they, they, like, they like ripped off like, you know, you saw the, the, the Got Milk commercial. It used to be a real big Got Milk and we just made it Got Jesus. You know, we just ripped that off. We thought that was cool. 
Or instead of Reese's, it said Jesus's, kind of. It was, it was bad. It was so bad. And, uh, and then I actually bought a, I bought a cassette tape early on in my teenage years. Most of the kids don't know what a cassette tape is, but I, I bought one of those. And, um, and, and it was like all the like current cultural top 40 songs, but there were Christian words to them all. And so Baby Got Back was something about your Bible. Um, Bibles are back or something like that, I remember. And uh, it was just a thing. It's just what we did. And we were just, we just jamming. We just thought it was the coolest, we thought it was the coolest thing in the world. But Peter's not saying this is the kind of weird we're supposed to be. No, no, no. Here's what Peter says. You're elect exiles. You're different. You're odd. But because you bless those that hurt you and you forgive those who come against you and you sacrificially are generous in times where you don't have a lot of money, that you seek to reconcile when things are broken, that you seek to restore, that you give up a weekend for something like this, some disciple now thing. That's odd. We've got a family in our church that I was talking to just a little bit ago who were saving up for this big like Disney vacation and we start doing this above and beyond initiative and God moved in their heart to not go to Disney but instead take that money they've been saving and give it to to the church so that we can build a facility one day so that one day maybe their grandkids or their great grandkids are going to be in this facility and they're going to hear about Jesus through a kid's ministry because of a seed they planted decades ago. That's weird. That's not normal. And they gladly did it. This is what he's saying when we're supposed to be a little odd. He says in verse 10, you, you weren't, once you weren't a people. If you go back to Deuteronomy 7, this is great because to keep them from being arrogant and proud, Deuteronomy 7, it's not because they were great in number. God tells them this, hey, I've chosen you. But don't, don't get proud because it's not because you were great in number because you were actually the smallest of the numbers. And it's not because of your righteousness, because you were a stubborn people. It was because of my grace. Right. You are a chosen race, a holy nation. You will be the nation, he says, that puts mercy on display for the rest of the world to see. To give the watching world a picture of what life could and should really look like. You are God's special possession. He says, God's special possession. Maybe your translation say a purchased special people. You ever been to those concerts and you're just envious of those people that have the all access pass? We, we went to the, the Nate Bergazzi comedy show a couple days ago. And uh, Ashley got good seats. She did. It was part of my Christmas present and we laughed and it was funny. But about like 10 rows in front of us, there was like a special place that had their own server. And I'm up there laughing and they're like really laughing because people are bringing them chicken wings while, while it's going on. They had this all access pass. And then afterwards I saw some of the uh, famous people from Shreveport taking pictures backstage with Nate, all access pass. And this is what Jesus says to us, that we are God's special possession. We are his purchased special people. And this is such a great reminder, friends. I want us to get there because sometimes in this world, we don't feel like we're special. We feel like we're beat down and things are tougher than they should be. 
and we have tragedy and we mourn and we have difficulty and things don't happen like we expect them to be. And this is why the gospel is so powerful because this is where Peter starts. He starts with our identity of who we are, all that God has done to be with us and to love us. That's why Paul's letters always start with our identity in Christ before he ever tells us what to do. See, religion teaches us that our function determines our worth and identity. I am because what I do, because what I accomplish. But the gospel teaches us that our identity determines our worth and our function. I do because I am. And God's the one that determines our identity. identity. We've talked about this the last couple of weeks with Gideon, with Abraham, even with Zacchaeus last week. God spends so much time in the Bible teaching us who we really are. If I ask you that after the service today, if I ask you, who are you? You might tell me your name. You might tell me what you do for a living or who you're connected to. Listen to what God says who you are. Listen to this. We could have 43 slides of this. It is, it is in every gospel. Uh, God's just pouring it out. It's in all of Paul's letters. It's all throughout the Old Testament. These are just some of the New Testament references. John 1, verse 12, we are children of God. We are friends of God. John 15, we are more than conquerors in Romans 8. We are chosen and dearly loved, Colossians 3. We are citizens of heaven, Philippians 3. We're the redeemed, Galatians 3. We're the saints, Ephesians 1. The holy nation, we're royal priests in our passage today. We're kingdom of priests, Revelation chapter 1, verse, to, to say to few. Each one of these identifiers communicates three things to us, how God sees us, how much he loves us, and how we can serve his heart. Ephesians 1, verse 3, talks about how we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Can you imagine what kind of blessing that is? To become a Christian is not simply to get the Lord Jesus as your king or even your savior, although both of those are true. It's to get Christ Jesus himself in you so that everything he has, you have. His light is literally in you. It's breathtaking, isn't it? Every spiritual blessing in him. Paul says, do you see the pattern? Every joy and every benefit that your heart and soul need and long for are yours in Christ Jesus. God is committed to satisfying your deepest desires by thrilling you with himself. Everything that brings us great joy in life. God created, and he's better than what he created. Think about the sunsets or the sunrises or the ocean or swimming in a a beach that has clear water or going on this majestic hunt or climbing a mountain or experience the love of another person or experience the love that you have for your kids. Think of anything that brings you great joy. The Bible says every good gift comes from him. And we're only seeing it through a, through, a fo- through a fog, Paul says. This is how great God is, and he has given us every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. He's giving it to us. That's who we are. Of course, the problem is, right, we forget. We forget who we are and whose we are and why we're here, who the real enemy is, what it looks like to succeed in the kingdom. This is why Peter's reminding us, you're a cho- chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I want to look at that phrase for the rest of our time, this idea of royal priesthood. Now, in the Bible, priests did really three main things. 
They offered spiritual sacrifices to God. They represented God to people and people to God. I'm going to talk about those. The first thing that a priest did, and this is what he's calling us. I didn't come up with this name. This is, this is what Peter said. This is who we are as God's people scattered around the world. We are a royal priesthood. Our job is to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. Is what it says in verse 5. Exactly. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. There's the word again. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. The priest's first responsibility was to worship and love and bless God. They were to bring spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. We exist for that same reason. First and foremost, we exist for God, not for ourselves, not even for our family, not even to, 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 to administer justice. We exist for God. I went through the New Testament and just jotted down a few places where it talked about what our job is as, a, as the, what, what spiritual sacrifices we actually bring, because that word can be just so kind of ethereal. Romans 12 says we offer our bodies as sacrifices to the Lord, our very bodies. Hebrews 13, verse 16 says our money. Why do we give? We don't give because the church needs it. We give as a sacrifice unto the Lord. It's a spiritual sacrifice. Verse 15 of Hebrews 13 says the very praise of our lips is a spiritual sacrifice unto the Lord. We are here to bless the Lord. You know, we have a problem in America that our worship is so self-centered that we come in here on a Sunday and we sing the most incredible truths. And yet we sit here with our arms folded like, I dare, I dare you bless me. That's not a spiritual sacrifice. As a matter of fact, God says, if you're going to sing like that, I'd rather you shut your mouth. Because it's like clanging cymbals in my ear. I want to hear your spiritual sacrifices even when you don't feel it. When you're in the valley. When you're under the weight of all the things, that's when you offer this spiritual sacrifice. It's not about what you feel. The point of worship has literally nothing to do with how you feel. We lift our hands and our hearts and our praise to him with our lips because of how great he is. I wish we would learn to praise Jesus with the same level of emotion and passion that we used to celebrate our sin with. We should celebrate redemption with more might and more wonder and more joy than we ever celebrated our sin. I hear these stories of these adults. Bro, when I was in college, I would go to an all-night rave, man. I wouldn't even sleep. I wouldn't sleep for three days at Coachella. Maybe you don't know what that is. Woodstock. I wouldn't sleep at Woodstock. Let's not even talk about just sin, but the passion and celebration Last week at the Highland Parade, many of these students, some of you adults are literally jumping on top. You're just screaming, throw me something, mister, for a hot dog, a disgusting hot dog that Hudson ate immediately. We lose our minds for something that has no eternal significance, and then we come into a place like this, and we're like, just our mouths are shut. Can we not praise from the very depths of our heart? The one who rescued us out of the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of light? Listen, if we, if we, can't, if we can get our emotions around this, we're going to be miserable in heaven. This is part of what we do. The point is not how we feel. The point is what is he worthy of? And I'm not saying we're going to lift our hands and jump up and down and make a spectacle of us. It is not about us. 
It's about him. How do you, how do you really worship a king? I, I can promise you you don't do it scrolling on your phone. I can promise you you don't do it thinking about lunch. How do you worship a king? There's all different postures of worshiping a king through the Old Testament with arms lifted, prostrate on the ground, on your knees, solemnly standing there. You can worship without, with, with, without you know, running around circles. It's about what's in your heart. I went on a mission trip to a place one time where it wasn't very popular to be crazy about Jesus. And we gathered with no instruments in this small little house. And mostly men gathered there and we just sang some of the hymns. But it was the most intense worship I had ever been. Not because of hands lifted or hands not lifted or on the knee. The presence of God was there because those men were hungry for it. What is he worthy of? Our job as a priest is to bring spiritual sacrifices to him. Worship is about our priestly duty to bless God with our words. With our action. Think about the woman with the alabaster jar. It was worth a year's wages. Probably been handed down from her parents and and their parents. And it was a family heirloom. And remember she brings it and she breaks it over Jesus' feet. And even the own disciples is like, you shouldn't have done that. We could have have sold that and given money to the poor. Remember Jesus' rebuke? She's done the right thing. I will not rebuke her for this. This is that priestly duty to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Romans 15, 16 says, even the people we bring to Jesus is a sacrificial praise. When we witness, when we tell other people about him, this is part of our, our, our duty of a sacrificial praise to him. Why do we go all over the world and plant churches? Why do you give so much money at Christmas time to our Christmas mission offering? So that people that you will never meet on this side of heaven move from death unto life. That's why we do it as, as a sacrifice of praise. There's a higher motivation. And it's, what does Paul say? That it's the love of Christ that compels us. Priests offered spiritual sacrifices to God. Priests represented God to people. They would often speak for God. God would speak to them and they would communicate God's word and God's feeling and God's heart to other people. This was such a big deal. It was a responsibility of the priest. Early on, the Levites, the original priest, to set up, tear down, transport, guard, and attend the ministry of the tabernacle. You remember the tabernacle with God's... God's leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. And he says, hey, I want you to build me a tent. I want you to build me a, a, a gathering place. I want to build, build me a tent. And I'm got, my presence is actually going to be inside this tent. And every time the cloud would move or the fire moved, they'd have to break down the tent. They'd have to move it to another place. That was the job of the priest, to set up a place where God and people came together to meet. And the application is so easy for us. As priest, we set up meeting places between God and people. It's what we do. This is even Jesus' words when he tells the disciples to go and to preach that the kingdom of God is near. And why is the kingdom of God near? Because the kingdom of God is literally in them. That's why 1 Peter 2, 5 says that we're being built into this spiritual house 
that we've become a walking, breathing tabernacle, a spiritual house, a meeting place for God and for people. What an incredible honor this is. In other words, if you're a priest, not the guy with the collar, but think the guy with the collar. Everyone who is a follower of Jesus has the Holy Spirit within them. They become a priest. That's their job. That's why Peter's telling them this is your role. Everywhere you go becomes a place where other people have an opportunity to meet God. In the checkout line at Target, the opportunity the guy in line behind me to have a meeting with God. If I'm listening and sensitive to the Holy Spirit, he'll move. Say, once you go tell, tell that guy, God loves them or I see them. At the car dealership, another opportunity for the salesman to actually have an encounter with God. Not that you're God. No, but Christ in you is the hope of glory. At your home, with your neighbors, with your kids, a constant opportunity to meet with God. At church and on the road or in the office or on a platform, everywhere we go, we carry God with us. It's an opportunity for a meeting place. We have the opportunity to steward God's people, to steward people's meetings with God. Think about how Jesus was and who he hung out with. And how he spoke, Jesus always told the truth, but no one, no matter how broken or how dirty or how stained, was ever turned away or despised. They were loved, and Jesus spent time with them. Priests today in different faiths, they wear collars. And they wear collars so that you would know, hey, I need someone who knows God, and they're there. They're, they, they are the people who know God. Priests represented God to people and people to God. Priests not only represented God to people, but they, they represented people before God. They would go before God and God would hear their prayer. The Old Testament priests wore this thing like an, called an ephod. Think of like a Columbia vest or, or nighty. I don't know. It's just this thing that they would put over their clothes and it would have the, the 12 stones of Israel near the heart of the priest. And as they would do their priestly duty... In the temple, they were bringing the people of God with them. Hebrews says that Jesus is our high priest, and he now has us on his heart, even on his hands, literally standing in the gap for us. And then Jesus gave us that position. He put us in that position that we take others on our heart before God. In the gospel, Jesus' power was often released according to faith. You remember the guys that actually brought the, 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 the lame man on the mat and dug through, through the roof and they dropped the, they, they dropped the man down and Jesus healed them. And it says there, and theologians don't really know what to do with this phrase, that, that the man, the lame man was healed because of their faith. This is the job of the priest, that we bring other people before God. That's what intercessory prayer is. One hand holding on to God as our good father and one hand holding on to the people of this world that don't know him. And we are praying for them. We're praying to God for them and we're telling them about who God is. We're representing him. That's what priests did. But this is so, this is so, hang with me. I know it's hot in here. This is pretty incredible. Peter goes a next step. He doesn't just tell us priests. Now this, this is amazing. This, I spent 48 hours on this, on this one word. This, I just, I, it's just, it just, it was incredible. He, not, not only are we priests, but we're royal priests. Royal or kingly or queenly or of royal lineage. 
Priesthood is one who stands in the gap with God. But we're royal priests. Here's the thing in the Old Testament, kings were never allowed to be priests. Two kings tried it, Uzziah in 2 Chronicles. He went in to offer the sacrifice and God covered him head to toe with leprosy. He was a king that tried to be a priest. And then King Saul, he tried to do the job of a priest and God rejected his kingship after that. And he couldn't be either, couldn't be priest or king. Jesus was the first one who was the king and the priest. He was both majestic and accessible. He was secure in who he was and he had authority and he was an advocate for those that he did life with. Eventually he was an advocate for the whole world. And now he's given that ministry to us. This is just the craziest thing, church. We have the stature of a king, but the privilege of a priest. Now that doesn't mean we walk around ordering everyone to make us a ham sandwich or to serve us. Sixth graders, don't try that. That's not what we're talking about. That's not godly. We're, we're a king like Jesus is a king. And because we're a king like Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve, we can confidently, knowing who we are, we, we, we don't need to embellish our story. We don't need people to notice us and fan over us because all the love of heaven has been poured down upon us. We're, we're royal lineage. The Bible says in Revelation that when Christ returns, we're going to actually sit down and have this actual bank banquet with the best food you can possibly have. And we're going to sit with King Jesus. We're going, to, we're going to enjoy all the privilege of being part of his family. We're kingly priests. And he's given that very role over to us. You're a king and queen. If you're in Christ this morning, Paul uses the same thought with the first Corinthians, with the church at Corinth in first Corinthians six, a group that were acting like a bunch of three-year-olds and they can't get along and they keep doing all this sin and they're acting like children. He's like, what are you doing? Quit acting like children. You are kings and queens. And one day you're actually going to rule over the angels. Can you even imagine? And some in this room are like, oh, I'm just a, a worm. And you call that spirituality. Yes, you are a worm before God, but he's also made you a king and queen. So start carrying yourself like one. This is why Paul would say several times to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. There's something supernatural about your life. You're a royal priesthood. Don't miss this, friends. We have this dual identity, saved and sent, king and priest. We are saved, we're part of God's royal family, and we're sent to go represent God to people and people to God. And most Christians never get this, and because they never get this, they never experience the boldness. They never experience the abundant life that God has offered to us when we take a step of obedience. Cultural Christianity says, I got my ticket to heaven, I'm good. No, 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 no. You're missing the whole point. He radically calls you in and puts his favor on you and puts spirit, his, literally his spirit inside of you and then he radically sends you out. Remember the merry-go-round we talked about the other day. You're in the very center and as it starts moving, you're flying out of it. This is what God does. He calls you radically in and then he blesses you and he sends you radically out. The gospel and earthen vessels 
the Old Testament prophet would say. With Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Now go and be a light to the nations. Zacchaeus, he knows your name, says his name, goes, has dinner with them, then radically sends him out. Gideon, as we talked last week, came in, oh, you mighty warrior. You're part of the royal lineage. Now I have something for you to do. It'd be like a warrior going to boot camp and learning all the things and learning all the skills and then be like, all right, now it's time. The enemy's approaching. The enemy's encamped outside your hometown. You've been trained for this. You've got everything you need for this. And you pop up your feet. And he's like, you know, I'm good here. No, no, you missed the point. Jesus says in John 15, 9, as the fathers love me, I love you, kingly. Abide in my love, remain in my love. You're accepted and chosen and adopted, but don't just stop with half the gospel. As the Father has sent me in John 20, verse 21, as the Father sent me, now I am sending you. Do you see both pieces? Royal priest. We love the brings you in peace. I'm a king, I'm a queen, I have special access pass, but we tend to struggle with the send you out peace. Let me give you three quick points of application. I'm going to be done. How do we live a life every day? where we know who we are and where we are and why we're here. Just give you a a few application points. First thing you do every morning, students, listen to this. First thing you do every morning when you open your eyes is go find the Father. Find the Father. Every morning, just reconnect with the Father. I try to do this every morning. My alarm goes off. I hate alarms. Those are from Satan. But right after I kill the alarm that's from Satan, I say a quick prayer. Father, thank you for another day. My life for your will today. Your kingdom come, your will be done in and through my life as it is in heaven, in Bozier as it is in heaven, in Benton as it is in heaven, at my middle school as it is in heaven, at my high school as it is in heaven, at my workplace as it is in heaven. Do you see the priestly part? You've been loved. You've got to find the Father. You can't go out blazing trying to fight a spiritual battle if you have not reconnected your heart to the Father. The most incredible thing you can do every day before you check anything off a to-do list, before you go to work, before you go to school, is just find the Father. His heart's towards you. Scripture says he's actually the one that gives you sleep. Just find the Father. I've used this quote, George Mueller quote, the duty of every Christian is to make his heart happy in God every morning before attending to any other work. He was the one that led that great orphanage in Bristol, England. Before I got to go raise money and buy food and feed all these orphans, the most important thing I can do is just find the Father to make my soul happy in God again. Most of us, we don't do that. We sleep as long as we possibly can. We try to shove down a couple cups of coffee, we run into the battle or to work or to school or dealing with kids or whatever, and we're just not ready. We don't know who we are. We've forgotten our identity. We've forgotten all those truths that we know. We just need to be reminded. I can't state this point enough. Culture is trying students in a thousand different ways to define you. You need to hear from the Father. Let him define who you are and whose you are and why you're here. You ever... Those of you who drive, you ever got lost and had to turn the radio down so that you could think about where you're going again? You ever do that? Is that just me? I get lost all the time. 
and I'll have the radio blare and I'll be worshiping. I'm so lost. I have no idea where I'm at. If I'm supposed to be in Bozier, I have no idea. And I have to like, wait, 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 I got to turn the radio down. All right, where am I going? This is what it's like to connect to the Father. Connect to the Father. Father, you there? I'm here, son. I just want you to remind you as you go out there today that you're loved. You are so loved that I sent my very own son, Jesus, to die on a cross for your sins. He was condemned so that you could be accepted. He was rejected so that you could be adopted. You are loved and adopted. You are my, you are my special possession. Just hearing those words from the Father over us. You got to find the Father. Second thing quickly, I know I'm out of time. Second thing is to fuel your soul. You find the Father, then you fuel your soul. You ever just feel drained? Like I just can't do another day or another minute or another hour. Maybe you got a tough job or a difficult semester or some hard relationships or just the difficulty of like the Monday, just the laundry. You just do the laundry and it just like sucks the life out of you, right? Everyday challenges wear you out. You love your family, but caring for them saps your physical and emotional energy. Sometimes we just feel like living life is actually sucking the life out of us because we live in a broken world and it wears us down. Where can, where can we go to refresh our soul? Where can we go to find fuel for our soul? Man, the Bible tells us the word of God living and active. David says in Psalms 19:7, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul or reviving the soul. In the midst of the daily challenges he faced, David found his source of restoration in the word of God. Maybe you say, I don't hear God speak to me. Then read the Bible. This is his word to us. His literal word, active and living, you read it, and it reads you more than you read it. And it brings conviction, and it gives direction, and it refreshes your soul. But it's not just reading it. We have to apply it. The students have been learning this, this verse, and I've been hearing them recite it. And on the way to youth on Wednesday nights, they're, Ellie and Claire going back and forth saying it to each other and correcting each other when they're a little bit off. And they had a weird word in there, grievous, they kept saying. It. I think Ellie said one time gravy or something. And I was like, I don't, maybe. Gravy's good. I don't think that's in this, this one. But it's not just knowing the word, it's applying it. It's living it out. And this is where we fuel our, full, uh, fuel our soul in the community of faith. The early church knew the importance of this as they would meet in temple courts and sit under the apostles' teaching and then they would meet house to house and they would begin to apply these truths in the gospel one another. You remember Psalm 73, Psalm of Asaph, as he's writing about all these people who don't know God and are actually opposed to God. And he says, man, look at them. They're just sleek and fat at the same time. Isn't that amazing? And they don't even honor you, God. And they look, at, look at the kind of life they're living. He said he was a beast before God. And then in the passage turns, he says, until I came into the sanctuary of the Lord. There's something about this of showing up today. Hopefully that lifts your eyes above your things that will suck your soul dry. Lifts your eyes up so you can see where your source actually comes from. You've got to fuel your soul. And then finally, the third part in I'm done. You got to fulfill your calling. 
I was talking to little Hudson about this this week. You know, he went to a little baptism class that Robin led. And with all my kids before they're baptized, I want us to talk. What does faith mean? What does it mean to be baptized? Do they understand the concept of sin and depravity, the things that keeps them from God and what forgiveness looks like? And we just talk about the whole thing. Then we talk about the Holy Spirit. How when you came to Christ, Holy Spirit actually comes to reside in you and he brings with him gifts, spiritual gifts that God has brought to you so that you can go and serve the body of his bride. I love it says here that we're to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaim his excellencies. Dad, when's the last time your son or your daughter came in their living room. You're sitting there on the couch weeping. He's like, Dad, what's, what's going on? Everything okay? Oh, it's okay. I'm just, I'm just caught up in the goodness of God. I'm just proclaiming the excellencies. To, I'm just talking about how good God's been to me and what he's rescued me from and what, what he's enabled me to do. To fulfill your kingdom calling. When you align your heart with his heart, what's on his mind will be on your mind. This is the most beautiful thing, friends. If you call Jesus your Lord and Savior, you are this royal priest, this this kingly priest, and you're sent to your school and to your neighborhood and to your workplace so that you could be the person that connects people to God in your workplace. Did you know that? In your homeroom. You're the little guy or or the girl with the collar. I mean, don't wear a collar. That'd be weird. But just so you understand that the whole neighborhood would know when when tragedy happens, when when tensions arise, when people walk through trials and they're desperate and they need hope, they'll be like, I'm looking for hope. Oh, 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 I know know Luke in my neighborhood. He's one of those Jesus people. I bet he he can connect me to God. Oh, I know John, one of my teachers. I know know he's a Christian. Maybe he can connect me to God. Oh, I I I know Claire. I know Claire's one of those Jesus people in my homeroom. When my life's falling apart, I know I can go and they can help facilitate this person meeting. Can you imagine? This is the call on us. Students, students, this is the call on your life. That you're to be a kingly priest or a queenly priest. In your neighborhood and network and to the nations where you live, work, play, and worship, this is what you bring. You ever been on an airplane or at a ball game and they're having a, they're having a, they're having a medical emergency and they come over to the PA, do we got, any, we got any doctors on board? There's a problem that's occurred and we need a doctor because this is serious. In the same way, this is what the Spirit does inside of us in our neighborhoods and in our homerooms and on our ball teams. When tragedy's happening and things aren't going right and people are looking for hope, the Holy Spirit's like, you're the one, you're the one, you're the one. I have you here for this person. Is there any kingly priest here? Any kingly priest? You're that person. You don't have to call the church. You don't have to call a professional Christian. The Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ literally lives inside of you. Deep in your heart, top of your mind, tip of your tongue. When you connect to the phone, you find the Father, and it's just a little ember in there. I've had a hard week, just a little ember. What Paul tells Timothy to 
fan the flame. You know how hard it is to start a proper fire? Really hard. Just with a little ember, then the right kindling, and before you know it, it's a bonfire. This is what God wants to do in your heart, friends. What would it look like if you owned the spiritual condition of your neighborhood or just the three houses around you? What would it look like if you owned the spiritual condition of your ball team, your soccer team, or football team? What would it look like if you owned the spiritual condition of the band or your homeroom or the chess club? What would it look like if you owned the spiritual condition of your sorority or your fraternity? What, what would that look like if you owned the spiritual condition of those around you in the cubicle? or those in the lunchroom, or on your faculty, or your staff, or your team. What would that look like? That's why God has sent you there. And where do you put a candle but in the dark? Let me leave you with this picture, and we're going to pray. I had a friend show me this picture about 10 years ago. It was pretty amazing, and then we were at a conference recently and saw this again, and it just reminded all these things in my heart. This picture is the Atacama Desert in Chile. And it's the driest place on earth. It's in northern Chile. And there's some parts of this desert that has no recorded rainfall ever. Places that it has never rained. Other parts of it, depending on elevation, get a little rain, but it is the driest place on earth. It's so dry, this is where people are going to see what we can grow in, on Mars. The little Mars rover that they made, this is where they tested it. They took it to the Atacama Desert. And it's basically just a wasteland. I mean, there, you can see there's literally nothing there. But a decade ago, they, they had a 500-year rain event where they received seven years worth of rain in 12 hours. And something unexpected happened. You got this next picture? It rained in the next couple days. This is what it looked like. You got even the next one that shows the kids playing in it. That beneath the dry, hard, soil they just didn't have any water there were latent seeds flowers just ready to bloom something that one week was dry and lifeless the next week was beautiful and full of life teenagers listen to me this is what I'm praying over you You know, there's what they're calling you, Gen Z. They're calling the lost generation. Because between my generation, Gen X, and you, we have literally flip-flopped. In my generation, 30 years ago, they took a survey of people between the ages of 13 and 23, 30 years ago, and they found that 90% of, of the students and young adults in that generation, 90% claimed to profess Christ as their Savior, 90% 30 years ago. And that number now is 10%. And it is going down so fast. 
10% of America, ages 13 to 23 surveyed, only 10% say that they actually believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And of that 10%, only 10% of them actually had a biblical worldview that I was made in the image of God, that I believe the Bible is God's word, that I believe God has a good plan for my life, that he's given me spiritual gifts. We're not talking about these doctrines of immutability. We're just talking about just the basic things. And so sociologists are calling you the lost generation. These students right here. And yet this is my prayer for this generation. That through the tears of their parents and some of the people in this room, students, we've been praying for you. That God would do more in a generation. That Satan thinks he's winning. And that he's, he's shifted the deck. Only 10%. Can you, can you imagine what this country's going to be? And, and can you imagine the direction the enemy thinks that he has won? And yet God can do more in a moment. This is what it takes, friends. This is what it takes. It takes your yielded yes to him. That's all it takes. It just takes your yielded yes to say, I'll be the royal priest of my homeroom. I'll be the royal priest of my, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't have all the wise words. I don't know all that, I don't know all that Christian stuff you're talking about. I don't, I've never been to seminary, but, but I know the fire in my heart is real. I know God has radically changed my life. What could God do? Tears is where it starts. Longing is how it grows. And devotion is how it stays. So I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And I just, I want us to end by just praying over these students. But before you come and students, before you stand up, I just want you, would you get alone with God right now? Just right where you're at. Would you get alone with him? And would you ask God that question of yourself? Would you just say, God, God, what are you, what are you leading me to do? Lord, what, what would you have me do? Maybe you've been hiding some sin in your life and you need to confess and repent those things. You need to go talk to your parents that may be in the room or on the ride home. You need to, you need to, you need to fess up. You need to, be, you need to be honest with them. Maybe there's somebody in this room that you've offended adults that you need to reconcile with. Maybe, maybe your soul looks like that dry desert and it, things just feel brittle. It's been a long time since you had the joy of the Lord in your heart. Your prayer is that of David in Psalms 51. Lord, restore, return to me the joy of salvation. Would you just ask the Lord, 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 what do you lead me to do? just a moment we're going to have the prayer team in the back and they would love to pray with you you find me or Jason before we do that I just want to lead us in prayer for these students then we're going to sing students if you're sitting right here would you just stand up right where you are just have all the students just stand up right where you are Even if you're not part of this weekend, you can be a student somewhere else in the room. If you're, 
middle school, high school. Church, I'm going to ask us to pray over them. Just right here, if you're able, I'm going to ask the rest of us to stand. And we're going to pray over this next generation. We're going to ask God to do more in a moment what we could do in decades. We're going to stand in the gap for them. Maybe you want to just come forward and put a hand on them. If not, just from where you're seated, you can just kind of stretch your hand towards them. And I just want us to pray. Would you join me in praying for this next generation? You can pray aloud if you like. You can pray quietly. I'm going to lead us in some different things to pray. But just take a moment right now. Would you pray over them? God, I pray over these students. Lord, just as you have a great plan for their life, I acknowledge the enemy has a plan to derail their life. And he wants them to forget their identity and lose their purpose. So much so that he's already been working in turmoil for years and years, maybe decades in their own life. Many of them are walking down some pretty hard roads. I I can't imagine what it's like to be a teenager in this generation. But God, I pray for them. I pray just like this desert that you would do more in a moment. Lord, through the tears of their parents or the tears of these youth workers, the tears of a godly grandparent, Lord, that you would stir something up in their heart, that you would remind them of their purpose and who they are, that they are royal priests before you. Or we pray over our kids and our grandkids. We don't know what kind of world that they're walking into, but it's a scary one, no doubt. And yet we have no reason to fear because God said, you who are in us are greater than he that's in the world. So God, I pray that you would move in their generation. I pray that you would move in their middle schools and their junior highs. I pray that you would move in their high school. I pray for the other youth ministries in this city pray for the parachurch ministries of First Priority and FCA and others. Lord, I pray that you would bring the right leaders and workers alongside them. I pray against the enemy. Lord, in the name of Jesus, we, we, we proclaim that, that Satan, you can't have our kids. God, we need you to move. Lord, would you help them find you that they would find the Father? and that you would fuel their soul and that they would walk in confidence to fulfill their kingdom destiny, that they would follow your spirit. Maybe there's people in the room tonight and you're, you've got grown kids and they're not walking with Jesus. You just pray for them right now, that wherever they're at in whatever city, that God would grab their heart. You've got little kids and aren't in this room. Would you, just, would you just pray for them right now? Pray that God would just raise up mighty warriors for him. God, do only what you can. In Jesus' name we pray. We're going to sing, but there's still people in the back. I want you to do business with God. Don't leave here without doing business with God.